0: Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a serious talk about animals. I'm Peter Spiegel. Well, do you remember that case of Naruto, that crested macaque? Uh, that was the subject of the monkey selfie. Remember that beautiful uh, image with that toothy grin that was uh, just made it everywhere around the world? Well, you may remember that image sparked a lawsuit, and uh, the PETA Foundation sued to get this monkey to have the copyright of the image and uh, with the understanding that the proceeds might benefit his, his group. I spoke with PETA Foundation attorney Jared Goodman, and I would encourage you to go back to the September 16th, 2017 show. And he describes the settlement that was reached between PETA and the person who owned the camera, whose name is David Slater. It was his camera and he had left it on the ground and uh, uh, the monkey came and manipulated it and pressed the button and took the image Uh, well one thing leads to another and I thought it was a done deal and then I learned that a court has ruled uh, superseding this agreement and that really confused me I guess I don't understand how these things go and uh, we're going to try to uh, figure out uh, what happened here and uh, and what the implications are and I'm pleased to welcome back uh, attorney Bob Ferber welcome Bob Hi, Peter. We've talked about this before, and this definitely goes well beyond my legal pay grade. So uh, maybe you can help us understand what happened here, particularly how did this uh, case stay alive when it was uh, settled?
1: Well, Peter, that's a very good question, and when you first contacted me about this, I have to admit, I was a little stumped also, or a little curious as to what happened. There was indeed a settlement between Peter and the photographer, uh, which... uh, gave us uh, gave a certain uh, that the photographer could allow uh, could use the photograph uh... and promote it as a you know as his but we, he would have to donate a certain uh... amount or percentage of the proceeds a smaller a small amount to an animal welfare something that would benefit um, monkeys presumably naruto uh, we also as you said it looked like it was over well what happened was that when that settlement happened Peta had already lost in in a lower federal court. The judge had the judges very sharply, kind of almost reprimanded Peta, saying that they thought that it was a very frivolous lawsuit, uh, and that you know, and so they ruled against it and said that Naruto did not have a copyright, and in fact, they questioned Peta's right to even go to court on behalf of Naruto the monkey. Well, it sounded so. They they filed an, an appeal. PETA, and it went up to a higher federal court, we called the circuit courts, which we have in all, all parts of the country. Well, while the case was there in the circuit court, and they are appealing it 's arguing basically that, no, Naruto did have a right, and when they're hoping a higher court will agree, one or two judges issued what is called a tentative ruling, and that's a fairly... It, it, it happens in civil court, and it's when judges kind of are giving hints to both sides that this is what we're thinking. It doesn't, And they can change it later, but they're giving an idea to the attorneys that, look, this is where we're at. When you come into court, we expect you to focus on these issues. Well, the tentative rulings were pretty, I, I would say, kind of, I don't know, I wouldn't want to call them nasty, but they were extremely anti-Peter. And uh, the judges basically berated Peter, saying that they really didn't have a leg to stand on. And uh, that they were going to pretty much rule against PETA again and uphold the lower court. Well, PETA very, very wisely picked up on this and decided to settle. Mm-hmm. And then was quoted as saying that, well, at least we got international attention to this subject, which, uh, you know, I personally think is a great thing to get this out there. However, uh, they got surprised by something. The higher court, when, what happened with the settlement is that. When you settle a case, both parties go into court and say to the judge, please dismiss the case, we've resolved it. Well, the higher federal court refused to dismiss it, which they have the right to do. And it's not a very common thing. Uh, So instead of dismissing it, even though the parties had settled it with this financial arrangement, the higher court said, sorry, this is such an important issue, we think. And there's been so much discussion around the country, and judges kind of don't have much of guidance, and it's a hot issue in the courts. We are going to rule anyway. And it's something that Really was a little surprising to me. Uh, so they ended up ruling very much against Peter, uh, unfortunately, uh, and against Naruto having any copyright uh, uh, infringement case. Uh, and the judges, in various opinions, said some you know pretty. Uh, Nasty things about the lawsuit. They thought it was a real waste of time. That Peter had not done their work, homework and really hadn't done any, persuaded anybody. And so, what ended up happening, and I don't think Peter ever intended this. W- what was created was what we would call bad law. Mm. Uh, bad law for the side of people like us who want to see animals get more rights uh before the appellate court or i'm sorry before that higher court ruled peter could have said that well there's no definitive ruling a higher court really hasn't ruled we settled the case uh the other side agreed that you know that that maybe there's an argument so maybe at this point we can say that you know animals do have a right to have a copyright. What Peter thought was that the settlement would mean that, well, we've sort of gotten a lot of national, international attention, but we don't have any judge saying it can't happen. Well, to Peter's surprise, I'm quite sure, the federal higher court said, no, we're not dismissing the case. We're going to actually make a ruling. And they ruled against Peter. And so, unfortunately, there now is what we call legal precedent. Case law that says that it's not open to question that we, as federal judges, are saying that Naruto and other animals do not have a right to—you uh, know—they're not going to be treated as humans.
0: Bob, did the uh, court address the issue of standing and uh, whether this case even should have made it to them?
1: Yes, uh, standing is—in uh, fact, I know one of the attorneys that originally got involved in it—and. Standing is nothing more than a legal term for saying that whoever's coming to court, do you have a right to to argue what you're arguing? Now, most cases, if, you know, you're going to small claims court and you're suing somebody, you have a standing to represent yourself, and the person who, you know, you're suing does. But what happens when you're representing or you're getting involved with somebody else, or in this case, a monkey, is the party? Well... The question is, does PETA have a legal right to come into court? They're not suing on behalf of PETA. They're suing on behalf of the monkey. And the court uh, basically really questioned the uh, PETA's uh, right to be able to bring this case on behalf of the monkey. They did allow it to proceed, but at the end, when the, those higher federal judges made some comments about the lawsuit. One of them actually had made a comment that, well, the settlement. How is the settlement even helping Naruto? We just told you that monkeys can't have stand, have standing to sue. So how is how did you even help Naruto? And it gets a little complicated. But basically, the court really felt that it, that PETA did not have they. They were not comfortable with the idea of Peter representing the monkey, which, which by the way, is very disturbing because uh, it's a real setback, I think, for the welfare of animals in trying to change their treatment as just property because who else is going to come up on behalf of an animal except for an animal welfare organization? So it's sort of a circular thing saying, well, they're, we're suing because Peter's saying, we're suing because we want this animal to be treated like a human But the court is saying, well, you can't sue because you can only represent humans. So you can't represent the animal to say the animal should be treated as a human. So it's kind of not good as far as the effort to, you know, that I think we're all part of, your listeners and myself, of wanting to give animals, you know, to be treating them differently than just a chair or a table or an inanimate piece of furniture. We're
0: speaking with Bob Ferber about the latest on the monkey selfie case. There are other elements uh, we're going to explore after the break, so stick around. You're listening to Animals Today.
2: Hi, I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and this Animals Today Minute is about dog bites and how to avoid and prevent them. According to the CDC, approximately 4.5 million dog bites on people occur yearly. That means about 1 in 72 people get bitten each year by dogs. Now, we all love our dogs, but it's smart to know some of the facts about bites. National Dog Bite Prevention Week takes place during the second full week of April each year and focuses on educating people about preventing dog bites. According to the AVMA, most if not all bites can be prevented. By far, children are the most common victims of dog bites, followed by the elderly, and yes, postal carriers. We all know that the medical consequences of bites can be serious, like causing infections, causing severe pain, requiring surgery, causing disfigurement, and so on. The American Society of Plastic Surgeons reported that nearly 29,000 reconstructive procedures were performed in 2016 for injuries caused by dog bites and dog bites often result in homeowners insurance claims. According to the data of the Insurance Information Institute, there were more than 18,000 dog bite insurance claims in 2017, with the average cost paid out per claim being about $37,000. When dogs bite, it is usually in response to something like the dog being stressed, scared, startled, or threatened. So the situations need to be managed by us people. And dog owners should properly socialize their pets. There's lots of information online about how to do that. And duh, we should keep our dogs on leashes when they're out. And choose the right dog for your family. And of course, make sure they're fixed. Do appropriate obedience training and keep them well exercised. Remember, a tired dog is a happy dog. A few especially risky situations have been identified including when the dog is not with its owner, when the dog is with its owner but the owner has not given permission to pet the dog, injured or sick dogs, dogs that are sleeping or eating, and growling and barking dogs. There are other common sense things to do to avoid bites like avoiding placing one's hand through a fence where a dog is on the other side and allowing dogs who want to be left alone their space. It bears repeating that far and away, most people who are bitten by dogs are children. So parents and dog guardians keep that in mind when they're near each other. Everyone agrees, even though dogs are man's best friend, there are too many people getting bitten by dogs. Do your part to make avoidable dog bites a rare occurrence. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and that's your Animals Today Minute for today. You're listening to Animals Today, your home for a serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirschner, host of the show. Well, I'm proud to say we are now in our 10th year of weekly broadcasts, bringing you timely and critical animal news from all corners of the earth. Join us each week as we explore animal welfare and animal rights issues, as well as fun pet topics with fascinating guests and experts. And if you don't catch the show live on your local radio station, you can listen two other ways by going to the Animals Today website, that's AnimalsTodayRadio.com, or as a podcast on iTunes. It's so easy to subscribe on iTunes, and when you do, each week, usually on Sunday, a fresh show will download right onto your device. I'm Dr. Lori Kirstar and thanks for listening
0: we are speaking with attorney bob ferber and we are reviewing the latest on the monkey selfie case and its ruling you laid out some of the timeline and explained how a federal court got to rule at all even after there was a settlement and now i want to hear a little bit about the uh, reaction from stephen wise and his non-human rights project he was not pleased with how this all went down right
1: Right. Stephen Wise, uh, somebody who I have a, a tremendous respect for, has been trying also, uh, like Peter, to change the law and the attitudes about animals and to give them rights. Stephen uh, has taken a what I would consider a more, more lawyer-like approach. Stephen is looking at the basis for what we gave, what where in the law gave humans the rights they have. And it's in something we call the common law, which common law is nothing more than English law that was transferred over to American law. And the English law was basically there's two things in the world. There's property and there's people. And and people were given certain rights and we have things being have due process and all this other stuff that's in our Constitution. What Stephen has been doing is trying to persuade the courts in a, in a sort of step by step approach that that in the common law uh, basically every the reasons that they gave human rights humans the rights that they have was because of their attributes because we're conscious conscious we think we we are aware of our surroundings we have things like we have language we can plan we can look back in the past all these things you know and, and science every day is coming out with more and more information about you know what we as humans are aware of what we can do how our brain works even research is showing more and more that animals have very much the same attributes as people they think the way we do they reason the way we do we're not talking it depends on which level of species you know we're talking about but with primates and monkeys uh, and we're seeing it also you know with certain other species with dogs Research has come out showing that dogs can have much larger vocabularies than we ever imagined. That they can reason and think things through the way a human does. Uh, yeah, and so Stephen Wise takes the approach of trying to explain to the courts that look, the very reasons that we gave people rights, which is that they think and they walk like a, a they walk and talk and do all these things in this way. Guess what? So does a primate. Mm -hmm. Walks the way we do, sort of thinks the way we do, acts the way we do, has a moral conscience maybe, or whatever Stephen has been arguing. He's trying to show that all the reasons that the English, you know, hundreds of years ago thought that people should have rights, that animals basically are the same thing and that they're not the same as a piece of furniture. And it's a very powerful argument, and it it goes in increments. Uh, You and I talked on the – you interviewed me several months ago, I believe, uh, about a court case in, I believe it was Washington or Oregon, a custody case uh, with a pet. And what the judge said there was that while he wasn't willing to say that the pet was a child, that would be a too big of a leap for a court system, but he was willing to say that you know, when in a custody battle, it's clear that the dog is not just a piece of furniture or a, or the wedding ring. It's a it's a, a sentient being, and so the judge said it is okay. In fact, it's more than it's it should be considered the rights or what is the best what is in the best interest of the pet, as well as what's in the best interest of the, the two people getting divorced. And I think Stephen Weiss takes the same approach of let's just keep showing and nipping at the heels of the court system saying, look, animals are like us here. Animals are like us there. Look, more and more, they're like this, they're like that. They, they're so close to us. How can we not give them rights in the, in the common law? Basically, that's why we got rights. Well, yeah. Stephen is understandably not happy about this PETA lawsuit because what happened was... PETA, without intending it, ended up with a ruling by this higher court saying, not that we're going to leave the question open so that people like Stephen Wise can keep sort of, you know, nipping at the heels of the court and saying, think this, this. you know, let me keep showing you why you should change your view. Now we have a federal court that said, absolutely not, no way, no how, animals do not have a right to copyrights. And that means that judges throughout the country can refer to that and say, well, when, it, when somebody like Stephen Wise goes in, they're going to say, well, look, we already have a federal court ruling, not leaving it open to question, but saying definitively that it's not going to happen. And that makes it much more difficult for somebody like Stephen Wise to keep making his arguments. When you take a risk to go for broke, so to speak, and Peter did, saying we're going to go all the way and we're going to really try to make, just prove that, Naruto deserves the same rights as any human in a copyright thing. It just kind of makes it more difficult for somebody like Stephen Wise when he's trying to do it in increments. So on the other side of the coin, of course, is that Peter will say, well, we got international attention. Uh, It's a trademark of Peter, is that, you know, sometimes we may not do it by the legal way, but we're going to let everybody know sort of in a shocking way, or at least to get the news out. I, I think that from a quote that I saw from the attorney, uh, Goodman, from Peter, that his intention was to get this, you know, publicized around the world, and that I'm quite sure the feeling was with the settlement that, as a lawyer, he never expected to create bad law, as we would say. And so, you know, one thing that it's a little hard to explain, but... uh, in, in when, when, when I was a prosecutor and a judge would rule against us on something, we could sometimes appeal it to a higher judge. But sometimes we decided, you know what, maybe we might get ruled against. It's, sometimes it's better to leave the question open than to have the question answered. If you're not sure, you're going to get the answer you want. I think that's the best way to describe it. And this is what happened here, that Peter kind of went for broke, asked the question, and unfortunately, got the answer they didn't want, and now people like Stephen Wise are going to have to deal with that in court. I don't think anybody should think that this is going to ruin his effort, and I'm quite sure we'll see Peter coming back to court again. Also, so it's two very well-intentioned, you know, legal efforts to help animals, and I think you know, time will only tell whether or not. This actually hurts the Non-Human Rights Project. I certainly hope it doesn't.
0: Bob Ferber, thank you very much for your thoughts and for explaining this uh, sort of convoluted story to us on Animals Today.
1: My pleasure, Peter.
0: More with Animals
2: Today after the break. Hi, it's Dr. Laurie from Animals Today Radio. Today's Animals Today fun facts are about penguins. Specifically, the world's biggest penguin, or at least the fossilized remains of it, were recently discovered in Antarctica. 37 million years ago, a giant penguin, almost 7 feet tall, inhabited the rocky shores and the seas. Scientists believe this huge aquatic bird would have been able to stay underwater 40 minutes or longer, allowing it to hunt deep sea fish. The second largest penguin ever discovered was merely 5 feet tall. And there are your Animals Today Fun Facts for today.
0: Welcome back to the show. You know, we're all interested in it driving safely when we've got the dogs in the car and you see a wide range of behaviors uh, going from the people who like the little dog in their lap, which is something we always cringe about and we're afraid that dog's going to distract them or jump out the window or whatever. The dog in the passenger seat, that's not much better. Uh, Maybe a little bit, but they're going to be a projectile if you've got to uh, stop suddenly. Dogs in the back seat, that's probably a a little better anyway. And, of course, the uh, dogs in the back of the pickup truck just uh, roaming around back here. That's brilliant. love that. What are the car manufacturers uh, doing to improve and promote dog safety when you're driving with your dogs? Volvo, it turns out, has been interested in this for a long time, and they've been incorporating safety equipment into their cars. Um, Another company that's interested in this uh, especially is Subaru. There's a lot of aftermarket gear available, like a Nets and harnesses to keep your dogs where you want them. Anyway, along with Harris Poll, Volvo has just put out a poll of 1,342 pet owners uh, to learn more about this. And uh, almost all of them said they've driven with their uh, canine companions. But 48% said they did not own any safety gear for their pets uh, for the car and. 41% said they let the dogs ride in the front seat, which uh, we don't really like. This was strange. 23% of the respondents said they used human seatbelts to harness their pet. I just don't see how that's going to work at all. And only 5% said they used the built-in pet safety harness that came with the car. That doesn't surprise me. These things are unwieldy and really basically a pain in the neck. So in my view, there's still a lot of safety improvements that need to be developed or need to be employed when you're driving in your car with your dogs. Please don't drive with the dog in your lap. That really bugs me. And I remember, Lori and I, remember when we were on that uh, little road trip with our dogs and we were staying at a sort of resort and we were on the ground floor. We had a little patio and next to us Oh, we didn't have our dogs with us that time, but there was a couple next to us. They had three large dogs. They were traveling in an SUV, and in the back, they've got these three kennels, each holding one dog. And they got the dogs out of the car, and I can hear them barking in their little patio apartment. And they deconstructed these little crates, and they used them as barrier gates and made a little enclosed area on the porch for their dogs. So the dogs got to hang out outside with them without being tempted to run away and then go inside. It was the most clever thing. And certainly probably the safest way to drive with your dogs would be to have a crate, put the crate in the back, tie down the crate, and then your dog's in the crate, right? That's a lot of work. So maybe we can figure out a better solution. Welcome back to Animals Today. Hello, Lori. Hi, Peter. Okay, with all the Hullabaloo about that high school in Florida and the tiger and other animals they had on display I thought I would talk a little bit about captive tigers in America, right? Right. There are uh, thousands of captive tigers and they're generally all exploited and uh, they're owned by these uh, roadside zoos and attractions largely and uh, really what happens to these poor animals and the cubs is just a, a tragedy and it is just ridiculous that it is still legal, but really it it is. And there's this term called cub petting. Remember that one? And in cub petting, the idea is to create cub tigers, and then when they are at the right age, which is approximately eight to twelve weeks of age, you are permitted with your little license to pass the tiger around and let your paying customers get pictures of them holding these little uh, tigers. And um, These cubs, it's really a shame, they're removed from their mothers as infants instead of being with them for two years, and they're passed around from person to person often for like hours at a time. They can get dehydrated, they can be totally stressed out, and they're also exposed to viruses like canine distemper virus that dogs carry. It's very lethal for the big cats. They are fed by bottle, they don't have regular diet, so they can become malnourished, and they get this thing called metabolic bone disease, and the bones are weak and they break easily. And then you're left with crippled, injured, tigers. The window for these tigers to make money for their owners is very narrow. So they have to get a lot of viewings and paying customers right away. And sometimes the owners reportedly delay the normal feeding of these tigers to extend their value. So these tiger cubs are really um, abused. Of course, their mothers are also abused. They are bred at usually a very rapid pace. Uh, Usually, like I said before, they will stay with their cubs for as long as two years in the wild, which means that they would only uh, produce a litter like once every three years. But when the cubs are removed from their captive mother and then they are forced to have another litter, they can have up to three litters per year. And this obviously is very stressful for the health of the mother and it's just absolutely cruel. Now, the public... The public doesn't really know what's going on. They are kept in the dark about this. They think it's a cute thing and you get a picture of your kid holding a tiger and they are being misled. They are told it's educational. They are told that it supports conservation, which it does not. There's nothing about conservation in this whole industry of cub breeding and petting. Most of the tigers in roadside zoons are actually hybrids. They're crosses between different subspecies. And that means that even if you could find a place to release them, they totally are Unsuited to life in the wild. It just could not happen. And besides, these places are not going to release them anyway. Uh, moreover, if you cared, and I don't think they do, uh, releasing these hybrids into the wild would just mess up the whole genetic pool anyway in the wild. So that's not a good idea. So it's just a huge mess. We need stronger legislation. IFA, one of our favorite animal welfare groups in the world, is trying to do something about this and really it's going to take nationwide legislation to just make the private ownership of big cats just illegal.
2: Hi it's Dr. Lori Kirshner host of Animals Today Radio and I'd like to invite you to join me each week right here for the latest animal news from around the globe. From animals in the wild to animals on farms and in agriculture to our beloved dogs and cats, Animals Today tackles the important issues about their welfare and rights while promoting compassion and respect for all living creatures. And yes, Animals Today is your home for a serious talk about animals, but there's big doses of fun and adventure for everyone. If you want to know what you can do to help tigers in the wild, or whether your family should adopt a tortoise, or why you should avoid buying puppies from pet stores, you will love Animals Today. So make sure to join us on this station each week. Visit us at animalstodayradio.com, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and join the discussion on Facebook. Thanks for listening.
0: I'm now pleased to welcome Jen Riley. She is the co chair of the Animal Rights 2018 National Conference. It's coming up. It is going to be taking place June 28th through July 1st. Welcome, Jen. Hello.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: So, what is the Animal Rights National Conference?
3: Well, the Animal Rights National Conference started back in 1981 and it's been running annually since the year 2000. It's designed for anyone who cares about animals, from newcomers to longtime activists alike. We offer educational information, a free exhibit area for those who would like to learn about the issues, um, as well as those who wish to improve on their animal advocacy skills or network with other animal rights activists.
0: So it happens over the course of a few days. What can an attendee expect?
3: Yes. Yeah. So it's a three and a half day event. So it takes place um, this year in Los Angeles at the Sheraton Gateway Hotel, right near the LAX airport. Begins on Thursday evening, June twenty eighth, and runs through July first. So it ends. We end with a big party on Sunday evening. It's a very intensive program. We have workshops, daytime workshops running um, concurrently throughout the day, as well as film screenings with uh Q&A from the filmmakers. Um we also have plenary sessions which happen in the morning and evenings, which is where everybody gathers together and um we import, we focus on important topics and we also have a free exhibit area with more than a 100 nonprofit organizations and cru- cruelty-free vendors that offer really really wonderful um cruelty-free food and um merchandise things like that. So it's a really great opportunity. The exhibit hall is also Free and open to the public, so it 's available uh, if you 're local to the l a area. you can just stop in for free, check out the exhibits, and you can even attend one free daytime session
0: oh that 's wonderful and so uh, will this year 's conference be uh different from previous years
3: yeah this year we're we 're focusing more on um, some of the very pressing issues that we 've been seeing in the movement, and a lot of uh, a lot of people have been asking for specific changes to, to reflect the movement's issues. So we're really working this year. Our focus this year is on strengthening the movement. So our Friday evening plenary actually focuses on the power of diversity, strengthening the AR movement, where we talk about a variety of really important issues. Um, we're also kind of in that vein of, of self-reflection of our of our movement and ourselves uh, in in terms of how we're best being able to advocate for for animals, we're also taking a a stronger focus on on self-care and activists, really focusing on activist support and preventing activist burnout. So we have a number of sessions on um, building our compassion and endurance to be able to continue speaking out for animals, really taking care of ourselves, being kind to each other. Um, We have a wrap session on how to cope with stress So it's really important that we take care of ourselves as activists, as well as reflect on on how to improve ourselves within the movement.
0: Oh, I couldn't agree more. I'm really glad you're doing that. Okay, so how can people attend? How can they get tickets? How can they learn more?
3: Wonderful. Well, they can visit the website. It's arconference.org. You can also find us on Facebook. It's just Animal Rights 2018 National Conference. You can... Register right now. We actually have a special discount code where you can get $25 off a full registration if you use promo code Animal Rights 25. That'll give you access to the full conference that which you can register for just $150 for the full three and a half day event, which is a really great opportunity. Um, And if you also, finances are a barrier. We're really working hard this year to make sure that everybody can join. So we have scholarship opportunities. Um, We also have a work scholar opportunity where you can come and join us on staff and you earn the full cost of your registration back. And we also have discounted opportunities for, um, you know, uh, sleeping in the hotel room if you can't, um, if, if it finances are a barrier in terms of staying at the hotel. So we have a lot of options. That's all on the website. It's ARConference.org slash save. And you can just check out you know, the best way that that fits for you. Uh, We really want everybody to be able to attend. And like I said, the the exhibits are free, and you can come and attend uh, one daytime session for free as well.
2: Well, thanks, Jen Riley. Can't wait to see you there.
3: Great. Thank you. really looking forward to it.
2: More with animals today right after the break. back to the show so we don't talk much about bees on animals today have we peter
0: no we don't it's been a while they're very vital to our food supply
2: they certainly are yes so you know what's coming
0: uh a snack
2: (laughs) i want to know how much you know about bees not much go ahead you want your snack first (laughs) i need energy okay there are three types of bees in the hive name them
0: there are the drones Yep. There are there's the queen. Two. And there are the, the workers. Very good. Oh yeah.
2: The male bees are called what?
0: Male bees are drones.
2: Very good. Okay, let's stop there. <laughs> you getting hungry?
0: <laughs> I just going to take my 100% results so far and just cash it in.
2: Drones' only purpose in the hive is to mate with the queen. True or false?
0: That Oh, uh, I guess that's true.
2: That is true. Male honeybees serve only one purpose. They provide sperm to the queen. Mm-hmm. About a week after emerging from their cells, the drones are ready to mate. Once they've fulfilled that purpose, they die. So they die immediately after mating.
0: It's okay, if it it's works.
2: Only purpose of a male... Bee.
0: <laughs> yes, I know. Okay.
2: Okay. Drones are not able to sting. True or false?
0: That is gonna be
2: true. True. They have no stinger. Did you know that or is no, that a guess? That was a guess. That was good. Good guess. The lifespan of a queen bee is around two to three years. Peter, up to how many eggs per day does the queen bee lay? Five eggs? Two hundred and fifty eggs per day? Or fifteen hundred eggs a day?
0: Oh, 1,500.
2: Yes. 1,500 eggs a day is correct. Without a queen, the colony will eventually die. Peter, regarding workers. All workers are female or male or a combination of both.
0: Oh, oh, gee. I'm going to say they are
2: all male. They're all female. Uh, that's interesting. Number of worker bees in an average hive. is 30,000. Fifty thousand oh, or more okay. in a strong hive. Very good. Uh, okay. True or false? The bee will die if she stings.
0: You know, I've thought that was true my entire life, so I'm gonna say true. It's true. Okay.
2: How many eyes does a bee have? Oh. Two, four, or five.
0: Oh. This doesn't go into the whole compound eye thing. It does.
2: I'm going to say two, four, I'm going to say five. Five is correct. Oh, okay. (laughs) Two with compound lenses Mm -hmm. and three light sensors on top of their head. Oh, that's right.
0: That's right. That's cool.
2: How many wings does a bee have?
0: And the answer is four? Yep. Two on each side. Okay.
2: Bees make honey from?
0: From, from the uh, um the nectar that they yes get? the nectar from the from the flower? Yes. Oh, interesting.
2: What gives a bee sting? It's ouch and it's itch.
0: Mm. Some I don't know, toxin? Yeah, it's toxins?
2: some chemical called melatonin. Ah. How fast can a honeybee fly? 15, mm. 30 or 60 miles per hour?
0: I'm going to say 15 miles.
2: 15 know. is correct. Okay. Wings beat how many times per second? 50, 100 or 200?
0: Mm. Times per second. I'm going to say I'm flapping right now to try to simulate <laughs> how fast that would have I to be. I see
2: you flapping. I don't Yeah, you can't flap as fast as a bee. Two hundred times is two hundred times per second is correct. Don't laugh at my methods; <laughs> they are the key to success. <laughs> no, it's interesting, Peter. The frequent beats per minute contributes to the buzz we hear when they fly. Yep. How much honey does the worker bee make in her lifetime? One twelfth teaspoon of honey in her lifetime. One half cup or one cup?
0: Oh, okay, half cup.
2: One twelfth teaspoon of honey. That's a lot of work. Yeah, it's a lot of work. How many flowers does a honeybee visit during one collection trip? Five to ten, ten to twenty, fifty to a hundred.
0: How about fifty to a hundred? Yes, that's correct. It's an interesting, uh, tough life for these bees.
2: Hope they're happy. Define happiness. Okay, Okay. no, okay. So, Peter, worker bees need to visit around 2 million flowers to produce a pound of honey. For honeybees, there's power in numbers. From spring to fall, the worker bees must produce about 60 pounds of honey to sustain the entire colony during the winter. It takes tens of thousands of workers to get the job done. A single bee colony can produce more than 100 pounds of extra honey and this is what is harvested by the beekeeper. Okay, extra honey. Right. What is the name given to wine made with fermented honey?
0: Hmm. I don't know what kind of wine that
2: is. Mead. Oh. Okay. Well, you should know this. You know your liquors. What Scotch? Hey. What Scotch liqueur is made with honey?
0: Oh. Uh. Oh. I don't know. Drambuie.
2: Oh, really? Have you ever had Drambouille? I don't remember. I don't is that either. a bad sign? <laughs> yes, it's a bad <laughs> sign. How many sides did each honeycomb cell have? Six. Very good.
0: Uh, elementary.
2: Geometry. How do honeybees communicate with each other? Oh, Release. Have...
0: No, and I know they have this dance,
2: right? Yes, they have a dance which alerts other bees where nectar and pollen are located. Yeah. The dance explains direction and distance. Isn't that cool?
0: It is very neat.
2: The workers. How do bees stay warm and thus remain active all winter? Do they cluster for warmth? Do they hibernate? Or do they auto-regulate their body temperature? Boy, I'm going to say they cluster. That's correct. Bees do not hibernate, but do cluster for warmth. The honeybee is the only insect which produces food that is consumed by human beings, true or false. Oh, uh, I'm going to say that's false.
0: Must be somebody eating something around that's the world. That's true. You know, well, like
2: you, no exceptions. Oh, well, okay. I mean, they might be eating stuff, but <laughs> normal human beings. Okay. Okay. How do honeybees build a honeycomb? I'll just tell you. Honeybees produce wax from glands located at the underside of their abdomen. They use this beeswax to build a honeycomb. Okay. And humans use this wax to make candles, of course, furniture polish, and stuff like that. That's it. Okay. You did good. You did really good. Good guessing this time.
0: Yes, I know. <laughs> Not about my liquors, okay? <laughs> I don't know my. Li- I better study up on them. Drambuie. I don't think I've ever had drambuie. Well, okay. Well, let's do some research on that.
2: Okay. Thanks for tuning in. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner, encouraging, S- you, to, <laughs> encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner from Animals Today, and this is your Animals Today Minute for today. It's kitten season, and you may come across a litter of young kittens. Your first reaction will be to rescue them, thinking they've been abandoned. Stop. It's much more likely that the mother is off hunting for food or looking for a safer place to nest, or was just frightened by you. If the kittens are clearly not in distress and the nest is not in danger, leave them alone, for the mother will likely return. But check again in a couple of hours. And if they're still there, then please, yes, rescue them. If you need advice, call Forever Meow at 888-889-0345, extension 8. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and that was your Animals Today Minute for the day. Hi, this is Lori. And it's Peter here. And make sure you check us out at Animalstodayradio.com.
0: Animalstodayradio.com.
2: And visit us on Facebook.
0: And you can also subscribe on iTunes. Listen to us on iTunes. It's Animalstodayradio.com. Thanks for listening.